Good morning. Welcome, Easter worshipers. Every single Sunday is Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. That's what the eighth day is all about. The seventh day, we know what that's about. That's rest. Resting in the Lord. We know what the eighth day is all about. That's He is risen. He is risen indeed. And welcome. We are in our second Sunday of Easter, celebrating those wonderful things the Lord has done. Uh, One announcement, uh, next Sunday between the 9.30 and the 11 o'clock service, right here will be a brief uh, church business meeting to uh, elect officers for the coming year. So stay over, be here after Sunday school, whatever your schedule is. We need a good quorum to approve these elders and deacons that have been set forth for us and uh, vote for them. Now, let's direct our attention to the Word of God. And let me just say that we're going to be in this, uh, we're, we're in the passage with David, but we're going to be here for a couple of weeks because Mark Davis, our pastor, has directed that we deal with this subject matter. And the subject matter is that of sin and the temptation to sin and our enemy and then what the gospel teaches us about the work of Christ with respect to our sin. So this may not be the the most pleasant topics, but it might not be any more important for the believer. Here's the question. What do you do with your sin? What do you do with your sin? It's yours. It's deeds committed in your body, by your mind, by your hands, by your feet, by your mouth especially. What do you do with those things that God has outright condemned? And that's really what we're going to be dealing with in the next couple of weeks. But let's hear the word of the Lord. In 2 Samuel 11, we continue with our story of King David. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But... David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. First Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Then the words of Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And then St. Paul in the letter to the Romans. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It was in the spring. The kings go out to war. 
David sent his general Joab and his servants, that is all of the attending warriors in David's military, and all Israel. In other words, it was a nationwide military campaign. And they were victorious. But David stayed home. He stayed and remained in Jerusalem. At this point, we've seen that David had turned Jerusalem into quite a comfortable place. He had built him a house. There were many wonderful residences there. The old Jebusite stronghold that was Jerusalem was turned into a luxury palace in many ways. And he was living in oriental splendor. And so he just stayed home and enjoyed what he had. He had done enough fighting in his life. He had led enough campaigns. Joab could handle it. All Israel was fighting. Why should he be bothered? Comfort turned to complacency. Complacency turned to carelessness. Middle of the day, David was taking a nap, gratifying the flesh, enjoying the leisure. Life was pretty good for David. We've seen this man. We've seen him in caves. We've seen him running. We've seen him in all kinds of circumstances of life and we've seen him praise the Lord and we've seen him pray and we've, we've, we've come to know King David and we'll, we have a few more uh, things to learn about him in his life. He was a godly man. He was a good man. He had married well in his life. He had a family, many sons, daughters. Don't you think it was time David enjoyed the luxury and the leisure of being the king. And he was relaxed in his religion because he had come to know God. And he had come to know God as a merciful God and a gracious God. And he had come to know the Lord as someone who he could have a personal relationship with each day in prayer. If there ever was a man who probably was beyond temptation, who had built spiritual fortitude into his psyche, it would be King David. But... He's waking up from a nap and he's walking on the roof. Must have been a luxurious home. (laughs) Had him a beautiful roof up there where he could look out over the city, look out over the quarters of his soldiers. Uriah was one of his most faithful men. And he saw a woman bathing. We know this to be Bathsheba. We're going to deal with that story probably a little later. But 
His observation was she was very beautiful. And the very first phrase of that third verse is where Mark asked me to stop when we were discussing this message this Sunday and next and the things ahead. He said, I'm going to stop right in the middle of that verse. He said, and David sent and inquired about the woman. He didn't just see her. He didn't just linger and look. He wanted to know who she was. He wanted to find access. He was already thinking about relationship. James helps us out a little bit. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. That's how serious it is. The sin issue is the whole reason that salvation's plan has been conceived and executed by the triune God. God takes sin so seriously that the only conceivable way in His righteous and just mind for sin to be dealt with is sin had to be paid for. The sinner had to be ransomed, redeemed from his sin. The whole gospel story is a story of God and man and the reconciliation and the appeasement, and the placation, and the satisfaction that is due God because of sin in the life of the human. If only God and humanity were involved in this sin issue, then it would be bad enough. I think Scripture says our own desires, our own lust, our own proclivities would cause us to move toward sin. We'd be like Lot. We would pitch our tent toward Sodom and Gomorrah. We would look that direction we would begin to perceive the pleasures of sin and we would be drawn to them. 
But it's worse than this. <laughs> it's worse than just the proclivities and the depravity of our flesh. We have an enemy. And that's the first thing Mark wanted us to talk about. We have an enemy. God does not tempt us. He does not push us into sinful behavior. But there's one who does. And that is Satan himself. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan has a role in our temptation. And that is to stir up and move within us those depraved tendencies that are already there. And answer our questions and remind us of things that cause us to excuse and to rationalize and to minimize our sin, doesn't he? I just sketched through in, in thinking about this message this morning what the Bible says about our adversary, the devil. First thing you need to realize is he's real. There is a real creature, Satan, a powerful creature that God Himself created and whose job it was to reflect the glory of God in being the light bearer of the splendor of God. His name, Lucifer, light bearer. He was an angel, perhaps an archangel, of immense importance and power. And you know the story of his awful, awful rebellion. He had a good ambition. He wanted to be like God. And that's the temptation he put upon the human in the garden. You'll be like God. You'll be able to know for yourself, to distinguish, to establish, to authorize good and evil. Why should you take God's Word for what is good and what is evil? You're brilliant. You're rational. Satan says to the woman in the garden, you can know it for yourself. You don't need the Word of God, has God said. And so we see that Satan is a real creature. We've seen that he is an adversary. And we see that he is a deceiver. He is a deceiver because he is a liar. If Christ is the embodiment of truth, Satan is certainly the chief representative of falsehood. He is a liar from the beginning, the Lord says. He's a slanderer. Every word that comes out of his mouth is some 
kind of slander toward God. The Bible says he's a slanderer of the brethren. He's against us. He hates us. We have brother, a brotherhood throughout the world that is undergoing the same assault from Satan. An interesting phrase there in 1 Peter. The Christians throughout the world are under an assault from Satan. Can't you see it? Do you watch the news? Do you just listen to the culture? It's a slander against God. Everything that's being taught and emphasized in our culture today is a direct contradiction of the first three chapters of Genesis. The creation. Male and female created He them. Be fruitful and multiply. All these things over and over and over are questioned, doubted, slandered. That's the work of Satan. He's been on the job now for centuries. And he is becoming exponentially successful in the world's population. It's grave. It's horrible. Satan is a slanderer and a liar. He is a murderer. He came to steal. He's a thief. To kill. He's a murderer. And he's a destroyer. God looked at the creation and said, it is good. Satan says, I don't care if it's good or bad. I want to destroy it. And he's done everything he can. He's a rebel. And as we saw in the text, a devourer. He doesn't build up. He doesn't bless. He doesn't enrich. He doesn't empower. He destroys. He devours. And his main object is not the cosmos. His main object is your soul. Your soul. He is out to get you. His role in temptation was not complete when he tempted Eve and deceived her and then led Adam into absolute sin and rebellion against the Lord. He pushed it all the way through the ages to the coming of Christ. I imagine Satan had a pretty good inkling of the gospel. I'm pretty sure he knew that when Jesus came in the flesh and took upon that humanity of Adam that Satan had so controlled and so destroyed and so warped, that when Jesus came into that flesh, that he knew he had to start his work all over again. Because this was a second Adam. This was a new humanity. This was another start. And so he began right away. And our reference here in Matthew is the temptation of Jesus driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. The Spirit of God says you've got to go through this. 
It would have been wonderful if we had read the story in the Gospels of how Jesus was baptized wonderfully by John and introduced the crowd as the Lamb of God and how He was claimed to be the Son of God and all the wonderful things that happened. And then He went on about His teaching and His living. But before He ever got around to doing any of that, He was driven by the Spirit of God into the desert. Not in a garden. This time, Satan's going to do his work in the desert, the place of loneliness, danger, privation, thirst, starvation. And he goes to work on the Lord and tempting him in very significant ways, great life altering ways. And the Lord says to him at the third temptation, according to Matthew's Gospel, be gone, Satan. Be gone. The Apostle tells us to resist the devil. Here's what the Lord was doing. Let me try to say this clearly. This is what the Lord was doing in the desert. He was standing up to the awful temptations and the assaults of Satan because you didn't, because you couldn't, because you wouldn't, because of your disability spiritually, your inability spiritually. Our Lord said, I'll take on that Task. And he resisted. He did not yield. He did not sin. There was no guile in him. He said nothing. He thought nothing. He did nothing that was displeasing to his heavenly Father. Think of that. We know He suffered on the cross for us. Don't we know that? That's how a nod of heads. Amen. We know that. Do you realize the suffering in the, in the wilderness for you? In His humanity, the Bible says He was tempted in all points. Think about that, gentlemen. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Like as we are. Yet, without sin. Christ lived that life, withstood that temptation for you and for me. That's why when we take on the life of Christ by faith, as He imputes to us His righteousness, and imparts to us His Spirit, That's why we have the salvation, the eternal life we have. He's earned it. There's a sense in which salvation is by works. The works of Jesus. The victory of Jesus. The accomplishment to stand up to temptation.
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What about your sin? Do not be deceived. The deceiver is out there. He's ready to fool you if he can. He'll, he'll tell you things. He'll have others tell you things. He'll cause you to catch on to some notions that will ruin your soul. Be not deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you think God means that? Do you think that can be taken seriously? Or is that just culturally conditioned to the Corinthians? Well, we know at least that because Paul says, and such were some of you. But hear the gospel. But you were washed. Every single sin that you have ever committed in your entire life is purged in the blood of Christ. That infinite purgatory of the finished work of Christ in His shed blood purges your sin. There's no evidence of sin in your life. There'll be none before the justice bar of God because Christ has washed you. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You were put over in a camp all by yourself. You were taken away from the sinful humanity and placed into a company of the redeemed. The blood washed. The redeemed. You were justified. You have received the sentence of acquittal. No condemnation. Not guilty. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Father, we thank You for forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to deal with as we come to see in the in the uh, days ahead, that we must mortify. We must not yield. We must not submit our members as instruments of unrighteousness. We must reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. Give us, Father, the grace that we need to live the life that has been bestowed upon us by grace in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray.